Chapter 7 It was not until after dawn on Wednesday, the 25th of January, as the bells were ringing in the parish church for the conversion of St. Paul, that the two draggled travelers rode in over the bridge of Fotheringay, seeing the castle keep rise grim and gray out of the river mists on the right, and, passing on, dismounted in the yard of the new inn. They had had one or two small misadventures, by the way, and young Merton, through sheer sleepiness, had so reeled in his saddle on the afternoon of Monday that the priest had insisted that they should both have at least one good night's rest. But they had ridden all Tuesday night without drawing rain, and Robin, going up to the room that he was to share with the young man, fell upon the bed and asleep, all in one act. He was awakened by the trumpets sounding for dinner in the castle yard, and sat up to find young John looking at him. The news that he brought drove the last shreds of sleep from his brain. "'I have seen Mr. Melville, my master, sir. He bids me say it is useless for Mr. Burgoyne or anyone else to attempt anything with Sir Amias for the present.' Mr. Melville had spoken to Sir Amius as to his separation from her grace, and could get no reason for it. But the same day, it was of Monday, her grace's butler was forbidden any more to carry the white rod before her dishes. This is as much as to signify, Mr. Melville says, that her grace's royalty shall no longer protect her. It is their intention, he says, to degrade her first, before they execute her. And we may look for the warrant any day, my master says. The young man stared at him mournfully. And Mr. Depro? Mr. Depro goes about as a ghost. He will come and speak with your reverence before the day is out. Meanwhile, Mr. Melville says you may walk abroad freely. Sir Amius never goes forth of the castle now, and none will notice. But they might take notice, Mr. Melville says, if you were to lie all day in your chamber. It was after dinner, as Robin rose from the table in a parlor where he had dined with two or three lawyers and an officer of Mr. Fitzwilliam, that John Merton came to him and told him that a gentleman was waiting. He went upstairs and found the priest, a little timorous-looking man, dressed like a minister, pacing quickly to and fro in the tiny room at the top of the house where John and he were to sleep. The Frenchman seized his two hands and began to pour out in an agitated whisper a torrent of French and English. Robin disengaged himself. "'You must sit down, Mr. Dupro,' he said, "'and speak slowly, or I shall not understand one word. Tell me precisely what I must do. I am here to obey orders, no more. I have no design in my head at all. I will do what Mr. Burgoyne and yourself decide.' It was pathetic to watch the little priest. He interrupted himself by a thousand apostrophes. He lifted hands and eyes to the ceiling repeatedly. He named his poor mistress saint and martyr. He cried out against the barbarian land in which he found himself, and the bloodthirsty tigers with whom, like a second Daniel, he himself had to consort. He expatiated on the horrible risk that he ran in venturing forth from the castle on such an errand, saying that Sir Amias would wring his neck like a hen's if he so much as suspected the nature of his business. He denounced with feeble venom the wickedness of these murderers, who would not only slay his mistress's body, but her soul as well, if they could, by depriving her of a priest. Incidentally, however, he disclosed that at present there was no plan at all for Robin's admission. Mr. Burgoyne had sent for him, hoping that he might be able to reintroduce him once more on the same pretext as at Chartley, but the incident of Monday, when the white rod had been forbidden, and the conversation of Sir Amias to Mr. Melville, had made it evident that an attempt at present would be worse than useless. "'You must yourself choose,' he cried with an abominable accent. If you will imperil your life by remaining, our Lord will no doubt reward you in eternity. But if not, and you flee, not a man will blame you, least of all myself, who would no doubt flee too, if I but dared. This was frank and humble at any rate. Robin smiled. I will remain, he said. The Frenchman seized his hands and kissed them. You are a hero and a martyr, monsieur. We will perish together, therefore." After the Frenchman's departure, and an hour's sleep in that profundity of unconsciousness that follows prolonged effort, 
Robin put on his sword and hat and cloak, having dressed himself with care, and went slowly out of the inn to inspect the battlefield. He carried himself deliberately, with a kind of assured insolence, as if he had supreme rights in this place, and were one of that crowd of persons, great lords, lawyers, agents of the court, to whom for the last few months Fotheringay had become accustomed. He turned first to the right towards the castle, and presently was passing down its long length. It looked, indeed, a royal prison. A low wall on his right protected the road from the huge outer moat that ran in the shape of a fetterlock completely round all the buildings, and beyond it, springing immediately from the edge of the water, rose the massive outer wall, pierced here and there with windows. He thought that he could make out the tops of the hall windows in one place, beyond the skirting wall, the pinnacles of the chapel in another, and a row of further windows that might be lodgings in a third. But from without here nothing was certain, except the gigantic keep that stood high to the west, and the strong towers that guarded the drawbridge. This, as he went by, was lowered to its place, and he could look across it into the archway, where four men stood on guard with their pikes. The inner doors, however, were closed beyond them, and he could see nothing of the inner moat that surrounded the court, nor the yard itself. Neither did he think it prudent to ask any questions, though he looked freely about him, since the part he must play for the present plainly was that of one who had a right here and knew what he did. He came back to the inn an hour later, after a walk through the village and round the locked church. This was a splendid building, with flying buttresses and a high tower, with exterior carvings of saints and evangelists all in place. But it looked desolate to him, and he was the more dejected, as he seemed no nearer to the queen than before, and with little chance of getting there. Meanwhile there was but one thing to be done, and that the hardest of all, to wait. Perhaps in a few days he might get speech with Mr. Burgoyne, yet for the present that too, as the priest had told him, was out of the question. Five days were gone by, Sunday had come and gone, and yet there had been no news except a letter conveyed to him by Merton, written by Mr. Burgoyne himself, telling him that he had news that Mr. Beale, the clerk of the council, was to arrive some time that week, and that this presaged the approach of the end. He would, therefore, do his utmost within the next few days to approach Sir Amias and ask for the admission of the young herbalist who had done her grace so much good at Chartley. He added that if any question were to be raised as to why he had been so long in the place, and why indeed he had come at all, he was to answer fearlessly that Mr. Burgoyne had sent for him. On the Sunday night, Robin could not sleep. Little by little, the hideous suspense was acting upon him, and the knowledge that not a hundred yards away from him, the wonderful woman whom he had seen at Chartley, the loving and humble Catholic who had kneeled so ardently before her lord, the queen who had received from him the sacraments for which she thirsted, the knowledge that she was breaking her heart so near for the consolation which a priest only could give, and that he, a priest, was free to go through all England, except through that towered gateway past which she walked every day, this increased his misery and his longing. The very day he had been through, the Sunday on which he could neither say nor even hear Mass, for because of the greatness of that which was at stake, he had thought it wiser to bring with him nothing that could arouse suspicion, and the hearing of the bells from the church calling to Protestant prayers, and the sight of the crowds going and returning, this brought him lower than he had been since his first coming to England. He lay then in the darkness, turning from side to side, thinking of these things, listening to the breathing of the young man who lay on blankets at the foot of his bed. About midnight he could lie there no longer. He got out of bed noiselessly, stepped across the other, went to the window seat and sat down there, staring out, with eyes well accustomed to the darkness, towards the vast outline against the sky which he knew was the keep of the castle. No light burned there to relieve its brutality. It remained there, implacable as English justice, immovable as the heart of Elizabeth and the composure of the jailer who kept it. Then he drew out Mr. Maine's rosary and began to recite the sorrowful mysteries. He supposed afterwards that he had begun to doze, but he started, wide awake, at a sudden glare of light in his eyes, as if a beacon had flared for an instant somewhere within the castle enclosure. It was gone again, however. There remained the steady monstrous mass of building and the heavy sky. Then, as he watched it, it came again, without warning and without sound, that same brilliant flare of light, 
against which the towers and walls stood out pitch black. A third time it came, and all was dark once more. In the morning, as he sat over his ale in the tavern below, he listened, without lifting his eyes, engrossed, it seemed, in a little book he was reading, to the excited talk of a group of soldiers. One of them, he said, had been on guard beneath the Queen's windows last night, and between midnight and one o'clock had seen three times a brilliant light explode itself like soundless gunpowder, immediately over the room where she slept. And this he asserted over and over again. On the following Saturday, John Merton came up into the room where the priest was sleeping after dinner and awakened him. If you will come at once with me, sir, you can have speech with Mr. Burgoyne. My master has sent me to tell you so. Mr. Burgoyne has leave to go out. Robin said nothing. It was the kind of opportunity that must not be imperiled by a single word that might be overheard. He threw on his great cloak, buckled his sword on, and followed with every nerve awake. They went up the street leading towards the church, and turned down a little passageway between two of the larger houses. The young man pushed on a door in the wall, and Robin went through to find himself in a little enclosed garden with Mr. Burgoyne gathering herbs from the border not a yard from him. The physician said nothing. He glanced sharply up and pointed to a seat set under the shelter of the wall that hid the greater part of the garden from the house to which it belonged. And as Robin reached it, Mr. Burgoyne, still gathering his herbs, began to speak in an undertone. "'Do not speak except very softly, if you must,' he said. "'The queen is sick again, and I have leave to gather herbs for her in two or three gardens. It was refused to me at first, and then granted afterwards. From that I look for the worst. Beale will come tomorrow, I hear. Paulette refused me leave the first time. I make no doubt, knowing that all was to end within a day or two. Then he granted it me, for fear I should spect his reason. Can you hear me, sir?' Robin nodded. His heart thumped within him. "'Well, sir, I shall tell Sir Amias tomorrow that my herbs do no good, that I do not know what to give her grace. I have seen her grace continually, but with a man in the room always. Her grace knows that you are here, and bids me thank you with all her heart. I shall speak to Sir Amias, and shall tell him that you are here, and that I sent for you, but did not dare to ask leave for you until now. If he refuses, I shall know that all is finished, and that Beale has brought the warrant with him. If he consents, I shall think that it is put off for a little.' He was very near to Robin now, still with a critical air pushing the herbs this way and that, selecting one now and again. "'Have you anything to say to me, sir? Do not speak loud. The fellow that conducted me from the castle is drinking ale in the house behind. He did not know of this door on the side. Have you anything to say?' "'Yes,' said Robin. "'What is it?' Two things. The first is that I think one of the fellows in the inn is doubtful of me. Merton tells me he has asked a great number of questions about me. What had I best do?' "'Who is he?' He is a servant of my lord Shrewsbury's, who is in the neighborhood. The doctor was silent. Am I in danger? asked the priest quietly. Shall I endanger her grace? You cannot endanger her grace. She is near her end in any case. But for yourself... Yes, you are endangering yourself every instant by remaining, said the doctor dryly. The second matter... began Robin. But what of yourself? Myself must be endangered, said Robin softly. The second matter is whether you cannot get me near her grace in the event of her execution. I could at least give her absolution sub condizione. Mr. Burgoyne shot a glance at him which he could not interpret. Sir, he said, God will reward you. As regards the second matter, it will be exceedingly difficult. If it is to be in the open court, I may perhaps contrive it. If it is to be in the hall, none but known persons would be admitted. Have you anything more, sir? No. Then you had best be gone again at once. Her grace prays for you. She had a fit of weeping last night to know that a priest was here and she not able to have him. Do you pray for her. Sunday morning dawned, the bells pealed out, the crowds went by the church and came back to dinner. And yet no word had come to the inn. Robin scarcely stirred out all that day for fear a summons should come and he miss it. 
He feigned a little illness and sat wrapped up in the corner window of the parlor upstairs, whence he could command both roads, that which led to the castle and that which led to the bridge over which Mr. Beale must come. He considered it prudent also to do this because of the fellow of whom Merton had told him, a man that looked like a groom and who was lent, he heard, with one or two others by his master to do service at the castle. Robin's own plan had been distinct ever since Mr. Dupro had brought him the first message. He bore himself, as has been said, assuredly and confidently, and if he were questioned, would simply have said that he had business connected with the castle. This, asserted in the proper tone, would probably have its effect. There was so much mystery, involving such highly placed personages from the Queen of England downwards, that discretion was safer than curiosity. It was growing towards dark when Robin, after long and fruitless staring down the castle road, turned himself to the other. The parlor was empty at this hour except for himself. He saw the group gathering as usual at the entrance to the bridge to watch the arrivals from London, who, if there were any, generally came about this time. Then, as he looked, he saw two horsemen mount the further slope of the bridge and come full into view. Now there was nothing whatever about these two persons, in outward appearance, to explain the strange effect they had upon the priest. They could not possibly be the party for which he was watching. Mr. Beale would certainly come with a great company. They were, besides, plainly no more than serving men. One wore some kind of a livery. The other, a strongly built man who sat his horse awkwardly, was in new clothes that did not fit him. They rode ordinary hackneys, and each had luggage strapped behind his saddle. All this the priest saw as they came up the narrow street and halted before the inn door. They might, perhaps, be servants of Mr. Beale, yet that did not seem probable, as there was no sign of a following party. The landlord came out onto the steps beneath, and after a word or two, they slipped off their horses wearily and led them round into the court of the inn. All this was usual enough. The priest had seen such arrivals a dozen times at this very door. Yet he felt sick as he looked at them. There appeared to him something terrible and sinister about them. He had seen the face of the liveried servant, but not of the other. This one had carried his head low, with his great hat drawn down on his head. The priest wondered, too, what they carried in their trunks. When he went down to supper in the great room of the inn, he could not forbear looking round for them, but only one was to be seen, the liveried servant who had done the talking. Robin turned to his neighbor, a lawyer with whom he had spoken a few times. "'That is a new livery to me,' he said, nodding towards the stranger. "'That?' said the lawyer. "'That? Why, that is the livery of Mr. Walsingham. I've seen it in London.' Towards the end of supper, a stir broke out among the servants who sat at the lower end of the room near the windows that looked out upon the streets. Two or three sprung up from the tables and went to look out. "'What is that?' cried the lawyer. "'It is Mr. Beale going past, sir,' answered a voice. Robin lifted his eyes with an effort and looked. Even as he did so, there came a trampling of horses' hoofs. And then, in the light that streamed from the windows, there appeared a company on horseback. They were too far away from where he sat, and the lights were too confusing for him to see more than the general crowd that went by, perhaps from a dozen to twenty all told. But by them ran the heads of men who had waited at the bridge to see them go by, and a murmuring of voices came even through the closed windows. It was plain that others, besides those who were close to her grace, saw a sinister significance in Mr. Beale's arrival. Robin had hardly reached his room after supper and a little dessert in the parlor before Merton came in. He drew his hand out of his breast as he entered, and, with a strange look, gave the priest a folded letter. Robin took it without a word and read it through. After a pause, he said to the other, "'Who were those two men that came before supper? I saw them ride up.' "'There is only one, sir. He is one of Mr. Walsingham's men.' "'There were two, said the priest. "'I will inquire, sir.' said the young man, looking anxiously from the priest's face to the note and back again. Robin noticed it. "'It is bad news,' he said shortly. "'I must say no more. Will you inquire for me and come and tell me at once?' When the young man had gone, Robin read the note again before destroying it. "'I spoke to Sir A. today,' 
He will have none of it. He seemed highly suspicious when I spoke to him of you. If you value your safety more than her grace's possible comfort, you had best leave at once. In any case, use great caution. Then, in a swift, hurried hand, there followed a postscript. Mr. B. is just now arrived, and is closeted with Sir A. All is over, I think. Ten minutes later, Merton came back and found the priest still in the same attitude, sitting on the bed. They will have none of it, sir, he said. They say that one only came, in advance of Mr. Beale. He came a little closer, and Robin could see that he was excited. But you are right, sir, for all their lies. I saw supper plates and an empty flagon come down from the stair that leads to the little chamber above the kitchen. 